Thanks, Lucy. It's so good to see you again, and um, <clears throat> and Shannon, and uh, and others, and. Um, it's a real privilege and a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, the people of Hamilton South Baptist Church. Um, many, many years ago, a cousin of mine actually was the, the pastor here, Stephen Turner, back in the 1970s. And um, I felt quite a connection to this church, even though I've never been able to worship here with you before now. So uh, thank you for the invitation, Lucy. Um, it's a real, uh, real joy to be participating in the beginning of this series, Exploring Your Whakapapa. As Baptists, what does it mean to be Baptist? A few years ago, I had the, the, the real um, joy of interviewing a really venerable veteran member of the Baptist Union of New Zealand. He had been the national leader in his day. His name was Ian Brown uh, he, from the Waikato. And um, I went to his house, I sat down over a cup of tea, and I, and I asked him to tell me something of his story. And I remember him telling me about a gathering of Baptists at, uh, in Wellington one year, the Baptist Hui, the annual Baptist gathering. Um, he had just become the national leader. And if you remember, back in the early 90s, Wellington, our capital city, was using as its tagline the phrase, absolutely positively Wellington. You may remember that phrase. And Ian and the organizers for the Hui that year somewhat playfully thought, let's Let's work with that theme. We're meeting in Wellington. Let's, let's use as the theme for our, our gathering, our hui, absolutely, positively Baptist. And um, he, he looked at me. I still remember. He looked at me and he said, John, it was an absolute disaster. All these delegates turned up to this event, absolutely, positively Baptist. You know, the banner was up there at the front. And they turned to me and they said, what's all this about? We don't particularly care about being Baptist. We're Christians. And, uh, you know, most of them, many of them at least, with no history in the Baptist movement, no sense of a fuckapapa back to the, you know, the, the Baptists, they, they, they weren't really that interested in exploring the theme of what it means to be Baptist. And, and if I'm honest, I get that. And I think if, um, if some of you were honest by the looks on your faces, you get that too. Our, our primary point of identity and our primary basis of unity is, is our common sharing in the life of Jesus Christ, right? We're Christians first and foremost, not our, not our participation in a denomination called Baptist. That's very secondary. And yet, I'd want to push back a little bit on that. Uh, I think we need to because we're starting a series looking at what it means to be Baptist. I'd want to push back and say, when you think about it, to use a, a, an analogy, every city in New Zealand, whether it be Hamilton or Wellington or Christchurch, every city adds something unique and special to what it means to be a New Zealander, right? They all enrich us as a country. We would be less of a country without Hamilton. And in the same way, every tradition, every movement of the Spirit that has, that has emerged throughout history under the providence of God has something unique that it contributes to the body of Christ. And Baptists are no different. What is it? What is the unique taonga? What's the unique distinctive contribution that we as Baptists make to the wider body of Christ and the whole world? Well, it's, it's not our, our unique understanding of Jesus or the Trinity, or salvation, or anything like that. 
They're all pretty much standard right across the denominational spectrum. For us, for Baptists, if you're part of the Baptist movement in New Zealand, you are part of a glorious lineage, a whakapapa, that is marked by a radical vision of the church. That's what we offer the wider people of God, is a radical, dynamic way of being the church. And some of you are looking at me really blankly right now, and so I'm, I'm picking that that hasn't really registered for you. So, so my, my confession at this point is that this vision of the church, it's deeply biblical, but it doesn't emerge from any one particular text. You can't, you know, turn to Leviticus 13 and go, there, that's it, that's, that's the, the foundation or the justification for Baptists. This vision of church emerges throughout the Scriptures. So, Lucy, this morning I'm going to break the fundamental principle of biblical preaching, and I'm not going to focus on one text. I'm going to, I'd like, if, if I can, to draw on several passages of Scripture and, and in that way, to, to explain why I love being a Baptist and, and the basic threads of this Baptist vision of church. Okay? Is that all right? Okay, well, firstly, I love uh, being Baptist because of the distinctive approach to discipleship that we carry with us. A distinctive way of walking together. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Can you see that up there? This is covenant language. When God first chose the people of Israel to be his special covenant people through whom he would bless all the nations. He said, if you obey my law, if you give yourself to me and to one another, you will be my covenant people and, and all the world will be blessed. And when the first Baptists read these words, they recognized this was covenant language. They, they realized that to be part of, or to, to experience the grace of God to us in Christ, to enter into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus, it necessarily meant becoming part of a covenant people, that God would, would own us as a, as a community for himself. And so they concluded that if we want to experience the, 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 the richness that Jesus wants to offer us, then it will necessarily mean giving ourselves to the members of his body in a local covenant community. That's how they put it. So in other words, they sense right from the word go that if they were to grow up in Christ and be followers of Jesus, they needed to walk with the members of Christ's body, holding hands, not just in good times, but in bad, when it was difficult to do that. The way they gave expression to their faith as followers of Jesus was to give themselves to the members of his body. I don't know if you're um, particularly familiar with the writing of, of C.S. Lewis. He's the author of the Narnia Chronicles. Most of us know him through those books. But he was, he was the member of a, of a really quite a well-known group of literary figures back in the 
the mid and late 20th century. Um, one of them in this group called the Inklings, besides C.S. Lewis, was Ronald, uh, Ronald Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. Another one was Charles Williams, and another literary luminary who most of us haven't heard about, but he was a significant figure at the time. It was quite a remarkable gathering of, of minds. And um, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a marvelous essay called Friendship one time, way back in the, in the, in the mid-20th century, just after World War II, reflecting on his friendship with this group of people, just after Charles Williams had died prematurely. Um, let me read to you uh, what he wrote, because I think this is, is spectacular. He says this, In each of my friends in this group, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole person into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. And this friendship, human friendship, exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no one can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in his or her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. In other words, C.S. Lewis is saying that it takes a community to know an individual. And Baptists have always said, well, how much more is that true of Jesus Christ? Do you, do you want to know Jesus better? Do you want to walk with him more closely? Then we as Baptists would say, you cannot do that on your own, and you can't do that in a community that's marked by superficial relationships. You need to be plunged into, deeply involved in a community of Christian faith with strong relationships of love and accountability. That's how we grow up as disciples of Jesus. And that's why throughout our history, Baptists, whenever they formed churches or joined a church, would enter into a covenant with one another in that community. They would, they would create and, and make a special promise to the other members of that community saying, I promise to walk with you in the ways of Jesus, these were their words, watching over one another here in love, whatever it costs us. It's why the early Baptists, when they, when they met, met together, they chose often to structure their gatherings in groups that were small enough so that they could really know each other, and in their words, thereby fulfill the the duties of love that we have one to another, both to body and to soul. So do you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus? Is that, is that your desire? Is that your hope, your aspiration, your longing? 
if you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus, and if you want to see others grow as disciples of Jesus, we Baptists would say, give yourself to a community, a, a covenant community, and walk together with one another in close relationship. That means pushing against the tide, the current of our culture, which is increasingly individualistic and consumer in its mentality. So there you go. That's the Baptist approach to discipleship, which I think is distinctive. What about, um, what about our approach to leadership? Uh, we have a distinctive way of, of seeking the will of Jesus together. When you think about it, in many traditions, leadership, um, in a church tradition anyway, consists of one person or group being given significant power, and then power just rolls down the pyramid from there. So it might be a bishop in some traditions, or a, or a pope, or a, or a priest, or, a, or an, a group of elders, or a council somewhere. But Baptists have always said that the supreme leader, or the CEO, of any local church is who? The risen Christ in the midst of his gathered people. In the midst of his gathered people. So we've taken Matthew 18 really, really seriously. This, these are words that Jesus speaks to the church when they are in need of his wisdom, when they're facing a difficult decision about what to do with, with someone in their midst who is... Who is consumed by, by ongoing sin. What do you do? And Jesus says, in that situation, when you need my wisdom, when you're facing a difficult decision, gather together in my name, come together, and as you do that, seeking my will, I'm there. Where two or three gather in my name, I am there in their midst, and I will make my will known. That's how we understand leadership at its best in the Baptist tradition. Now, that does not mean, like, let me be clear, that does not mean the absence of leaders. The New Testament talks about Jesus giving the church leaders, and Jesus expects those leaders to lead. But, and Baptists have always agreed with that, we've appointed pastors and elders and ministry leaders, and we expect them to lead. But one of the ways in which leaders lead in the Christian tradition, and certainly within this expression of God's people, Leaders lead partly by helping the community to listen to what Jesus is saying to them as a community. And we do that in a number of different ways. Some of you are looking at me, and I can almost, I can almost hear your teeth grinding, because you're thinking this is a call to go back to the bad old days of members' meetings when people rose up and, you know, and it was bitter and vitriolic and there was blood and skin all over the floor at the end of the meeting with winners and losers and churches were split down. I'm not for a moment suggesting we do that. This, this, this vision, this vision of leadership, I'm, I'm getting worked up here, this vision of leadership is not democracy. That's not the church. The church is a Christocracy, with Jesus in the midst, exercising his leadership amongst his people as we gather in his name and listen together both to his word and scripture and to his word through one another. That's the Baptist vision of leadership. And so it means when we gather together seeking his leadership, his will, we frame our meetings with prayer and worship 
and shared reflection on Scripture. We, we make space to listen to one another, not just to, to have our say, but to, to listen to other people. And we discuss issues and we reflect together on what God might be saying to us without having to force a formal vote. Who cares about motions and counter motions? That's not the church. Of John Nash, who was a brilliant academic, um, and uh, you know, I think he was at MIT, uh, one of you know the leading institutions in the world. He was, um, I mean, he won the Academy, uh, the Academy. Uh, well, Russell Crowe won the Academy, but John Nash won the Nobel Prize for his work on the dynamics of human conflict and the implications of those ideas for economic theory. I mean, he transformed economic theory and, and won the Nobel Prize in the process. But in the middle of his career, at the height of his career, he had a breakdown. If you've seen the film, or you know the story. And he, I mean, he didn't lose his mind, but he nearly did, because he started seeing people and hearing voices that simply weren't there, outside of his mind. He lost touch with reality to a certain extent. But incredibly, as the film indicates, he somehow mastered the art of discerning which voices were false and which voices were true. And there's a wonderful scene in the movie where John Nash has just come out of a lecture theater and he's accosted by someone standing in the foyer who says to him, um, Mr. Nash, uh, Dr. Nash, I'm here to talk with you about, about winning the Nobel Prize. And if you've seen the film, Nash just falls silent. And then he turns to the side and stops one of the students coming out of the classroom and says, excuse me, do you see a man there? Is, is he real? And the student goes, uh, yep, yep, there's a man there. And Nash says to the man, okay, I'm ready to listen to you now. It must have been so humbling for a man with such a brilliant mind to have to do that. But he had realized that to discern which voices are true and which voices are false, he needed to lean into community. And this is the truth of it. The Spirit of Jesus speaks through the body of Jesus, through, through the community of Jesus. And if we want to discern where Jesus is leading us, we need to press into community. We need to listen to one another. It's a distinctive approach to leadership. And that brings me to, um, to another distinctive, a third distinctive. We looked at discipleship and leadership, but what about worship? Here we are, worshiping uh, Jesus together. Baptists have a distinctive way of worshiping together. At least we have done so historically. I'm not for a moment suggesting that every Baptist church across the globe embodies and expresses each of these convictions uh, perfectly or the same way. Actually, if I'm honest, what I would be arguing is that these, these insights into the way of being church, deeply biblical, deeply valuable, I think a lot of Baptist churches, we need to recover them. We need to reclaim them, explore what it means to, to express them in fresh, creative ways today. But historically, this is how Baptists worship. Let me read to you the very first account of Baptist worship, dating back to 1609. Okay, this is, this is a description. The worship service, this was on a Sunday. Can you imagine this? this is, you're a Baptist in 1609, and here you are at the worship service, which began at 8 a.m. with prayer and a Bible reading. 
This was followed by four or five different church members taking turns to prophesy or to preach out of that one text. Each of those sermons ran for about 60 minutes. With opportunities for interaction, interjection, and discussion both during and afterwards. At midday, members broke for a shared meal together when they took a collection for the poor in their midst. And then, from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., the morning pattern of worship was repeated. Now, what stands out for you there? I mean, quite apart from the extraordinary stamina of those early Baptists who worshipped from 8 o'clock to 6 o'clock, punctuated with a short break for a lengthy, leisurely love feast, there's a lot of preaching going on, right? There's a lot of talking, a lot of discussion. What stands out for me is the, 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 the sharp focus on Scripture, From the beginning, Baptists have said, and and I think this is straight out of Scripture, we have recognized that God uniquely addresses His people and and the world through His Word in Scripture. Something happens when this book gets opened and we listen, we read and listen and reflect on what God is saying to us by His Spirit through these words. So, you know, the, the early Baptist reformers, we, we, we occupy the radical wing of the Protestant Reformation. There's Luther and Calvin, and you keep going down, and at the very radical end are the Baptists, who argued, we believe with everything you've said, but you haven't gone far enough. The implication of all these wonderful gospel insights is that the church needs to be more reformed as well. And we would say... And this is, a mar- this is breathtaking when you think about it. We would say, when we gather together, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. That's breathtaking. Because look at the text up here. Hebrews 4 verse 12. A passage we've clung to. For the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than a two-edged sword. It it cuts right to the heart of the human heart. This is amazing. Basically, what we are told is that this book is not a reference guide for good Christian living. It's not a textbook. It's not a dictionary of theology. This somehow carries the Word of God to us by the risen Christ speaking through the Spirit. So it doesn't just inform, it it performs, it transforms. God's word has creative power when he speaks. So, So God just has to say the words, let there be light. And there is light. The Son of God just has to say the words, Talitha kom, little girl, get up. And a dead child rises to life. God's word has power. And so Baptists have said, if you want to experience the power and the presence of the risen Christ in worship, listen to his voice in scripture. Let's spend time together sharing our reflections on God's word to us in the Bible. 
But we've also gone on to say something else. And, and this is the other feature, I think, from that account of early Baptist worship that really stands out for me. It's not just the sharp focus on Scripture. It's the wide range of voices. How many people got to preach? How many people got to speak by way of challenging the preacher and saying, that doesn't make sense. That's a load of crock. Because, you know, and that's what they would say. I mean, the, 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 crit, the critics of the early Baptist movement used to talk about how it was sometimes bordering on chaos, this kind of active conversation that would of, often erupt in the course of a sermon. The range of voices, it's really important. And so I think this is something many Baptist churches, many communities have lost. I've experienced the recovery of it in, in a small measure at the church where my family and I worship. We're, we're members of that community, and we love it. Um, last year, we introduced a soapbox. Quite literally, we installed a soapbox on, on the, the platform, and someone most Sundays had the opportunity to stand on that box and for five minutes talk about their walk with Jesus. That practice was continued when we went into lockdown, Praise the Lord, because it was the highlight of the, of the gathering for me. Um, and so in our, in our family groups, you know, during lockdown, we were watching a, a service that was being streamed online, and, and someone again was given an opportunity to pre-record for five minutes something of their experience with Jesus, either that week or throughout their life, and it has just been such a, a rich encouragement to our faith to hear what God is doing through one another's lives. I just think this is a really important thread in Scripture. We hear Christ speak through one another. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the writing of Mark Buchanan, but he writes about worship, and he says this. He says, I assume you're like me. I can get itchy skinned and scratchy throated after an hour or so of church. I can get distracted and, and cranky when it goes on too long. My feet ache, my backside numbs, my eyes glaze, my mind fogs, my belly growls, I find myself fighting back yawns and then not fighting them back, letting them gape and roar, a signal to my oppressors, let my people go, and, and I'm the pastor, <laughs> and I'm the pastor. The biblical antidote to boring, empty worship according to Baptists, is listening together to God's Word in Scripture and listening carefully to God's Word through one another. Okay, finally, one more distinctive. There's lots more, but, but this is enough for now. One more. As Baptists, we have a distinctive approach to mission. I, I love our way of, of witnessing together. None of these distinctives I'd hasten to add on their own are unique exclusively to the Baptist movement, but bundle them up, pull them together into a genome, a DNA strand, so to speak. Together, the constellation of these convictions and the way they are expressed in Baptist churches at its best, that's distinctive, and that's what we offer uh, the wider church. But mission, last of all, mission. Many traditions, Christian denominations and, and movements, they tend, I don't know if you've noticed this, they tend to focus either on evangelism or social justice, social action, one way or the other. 
Baptists cling to both. At our best, we say both are a vital expression of the mission of God. So, you know, from the word go, we have said that no one can just be baptized as an infant into God's people. How does that work? The only way you can step into the kingdom of God, the only way that you can be born again into the people of God, is to hear the word of Christ to you through the gospel. So sharing our faith verbally, evangelism, that's an imperative for Baptists. And you see that throughout our history. I think of William Carey. Um, he was, he, well, he was the, the man after whom Carey Baptist College is named. He took the gospel to the people of India in the Bay of Bengal back in the 1790s, when very few people traveled beyond their hometown, let alone left their country, and certainly not to take the gospel, because he, he read these words, Matthew chapter 28. Have you heard these words before? Go and make disciples, Jesus says, of all nations, baptizing them in the name or, or into the name, the life, for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that for hundreds of years, until William Carey read those words, the church had assumed that this commission was given only exclusively to the early disciples, the first disciples. And that in traveling and taking the gospel to the known world, they had fulfilled that commission. And that this was simply a description of what they were told to do and did. William Carey was the one who, reading these words with his friends, realized with a flash of insight that these are words that Jesus addresses to every disciple in every generation. But until then, that actually wasn't how these words were read. And so William Carey said, if you hold on to the line, I'll go down into the, into the mine, so to speak. I will, I will go to India and, and take the gospel there. And hundreds, thousands of people have, have followed his lead since then. I think of Rosalie McGeorge, Hope Still Pillow, young Baptist woman, courageous single woman who, when no other men were willing to volunteer, put their hands up and said, I'll go, if you, if you hold on to the line, I'll go to India and share the gospel, take, take the hope that we have in Jesus, to women uh, living there. Think of Billy Graham, the evangelist who has spoken to more people than anyone in human history. He was a Baptist. And, and I, think of, I think of the Baptist churches of Aotearoa today and the different ways, creative ways, in which we are giving expression to this, this evangelistic impulse that we carry with us. Think of a church in New Zealand, I don't know if you know about this, but they have started a funeral service. Not to make money, but to make opportunities to share the, the hope, the light of the gospel with people who are walking through the valley of, of grief. That's why they've done it. That's a creative expression of evangelism. I think of some Kerry students who in the last 24, 12, 12 months have been leading karakia amongst the land protectors at Ihumatau. They were invited by, by, by these local Māori to, to bring prayers, uh, to, to, to read scripture amongst that gathering as they stood on that land and, and uh, and called out for justice. 
And those, those Kiri students had took the opportunity and have been sowing gospel seeds whenever they could. And people have come to faith in the last 12 months. People you, would, you actually would look at and think, you have every reason to spurn the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they've embraced it. So evangelism. It's a significant thread in our DNA, but the other thread in the helix is, in terms of our understanding of mission, is social justice. Right from the word go, Baptists have said that, that it's not enough just to preach the gospel to lost sinners, as important as that is. We also are called to preach the gospel to lost and fallen systems that oppress and harm not just humanity, but the whole world. And so, you know, if you go back to the very beginning, John Smith, who was the first Baptist pastor to, to lead a congregation on English soil, he went there and wrote a manuscript, a pamphlet, the first call or plea in the English language for freedom of religion. But he said, not just for Christians, for Muslims, for Jews, for heretics and for Turks, was how he put it. The state should never violate and, and impinge on the freedom of the human conscience. Whatever your faith. He wasn't legitimating every faith, but he was defending the, the, the inviolable right of every human being to respond to the light that they believe God has given. Now, that's the very basis for the modern conception of human rights that we have and celebrate today, was Baptists. And I think of Martin Luther King Jr., you know, who was one of the most significant figures of the civil rights movement in the 20th century. Who was he? The only job he ever had and was paid for was as a Baptist pastor. I think of um, Dame Vivian Boyd, a New Zealand lay a Baptist woman, a leader amongst women. He, she chaired the New Zealand Council of Women. And, uh, and she was a significant voice as a result in uh, the middle, latter part of the 20th century, advocating for the same rights for women under the law in New Zealand as men enjoy. She was a woman and she was a Baptist. I think of J.J. North, who was the founder of the Baptist College, the founding principal at least, he fought for the rights of conscientious objectors and, and pacifists during World War I. I don't know if you know the story, but during World War I, we were so vitriolic, kind of militaristic in our, in our unquestioned support for Mother England in that particular conflict that we showed absolutely no sympathy whatsoever for people who, because of their Christian conscience, could not take up arms and fight. And so in one terrible, appalling, atrocious case, we shipped, as a, as a showcase for the rest of them, we shipped 13 conscientious objectors to the front lines in Europe. We forced them to march to the very front lines. One of those men refused to walk, and so we, we tied cable wire around his chest and dragged him the final mile across rugged ground through shell holes, got him there, was a gaping hole in his chest and his back about, about a foot long and nearly as wide. And then at the front lines, we lashed those 13 men to crosses 
in front of no man's land and enemy fire as a, as a form of mock crucifixion. Field punishment number one, we called it. Well, when an inkling, a glimpse of this, this event managed to make its way into um, some of the press in New Zealand, J.J. North, um, he, he, he ended up writing a pieces for the newspaper, sending them in to the editors, calling for a, a public meeting, and then ultimately insisting on a commission of inquiry. The government needed to investigate what its own armed forces were doing, and he got it. And the treatment of conscientious objective, objectors was, was improved as a result. That's an outworking of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that, that God's will through Jesus was to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, contemporary examples, this is happening today amongst our movement. I, I, think, of, um, I think of one church who announced at the end of last year that it was going to launch a social housing project in Christchurch to provide accessible, clean housing for the victims of what is a demonic housing system housing market. I think of one, um, one group of, of Baptists led by Dave and Denise Timms, uh, a group called UNO, Urban Neighbours of Hope. It's a missional order connected to the Baptist movement of New Zealand, and they went and set up a presence in Randwick Park, one of the poorest suburbs in Auckland. And they worked for three years to try and, with their neighbours, to try and transform that community. And the neighbours, their neighbours said, look, we need a community centre here. So with them, they built a community centre. And then others in the neighbourhood said, look, we really need some kind of kids' programme here, an after-school club. And so they set it up with them, and they set up leadership courses for young adults. And three years later, Randwick Park was named New Zealand Community of the Year. Such was the transformation. Why do I love being Baptist? I'm, I'm a Christian first. Jesus is my Lord. But why do I love having this family that I fuck a papa through? Because of our distinctive vision, our radical vision of church, a dynamic way of being the people of God with a distinctive approach to discipleship and leadership and worship and mission. And we could go on, but that's enough for now. My prayer for you, the people of Hamilton South Baptist Church, my prayer for you is that you would be a people who increasingly embody this vision of church, this way of being the people of God. May you be a people who walk together as a committed community. May you seek together as a listening community. May you be a people who worship together as a Christ-centered biblical community, and may you be a people who witness together as a gospel community for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.